0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Jose Olivares. Jose is an educator, award-winning poet, and author of a brand new poetry collection called Promises of Gold. I absolutely loved this poetry collection that started as a series of love poems to his homies and then grew to include the scope of a world dealing with mortality, grief, and tenderness in the face of COVID-19. We talk today about language and translation, love poems, and so much more. Remember, our March Book Club pick is the essay collection Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. We will be back on March 29th with Shanita Hubbard for that discussion. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love The Stacks and want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, and our monthly virtual meetups to discuss our book club picks, you simply must join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. It's just $5 a month and you get all of that and more. And you get to know that you're a part of making this Black woman-run independent podcast a reality every single week. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Special shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Lydia Holt, Louis Wolfenden, Giselle Green, Denise Verrugues, Tamara Adebisi, and Joe Hughes. Thank you all so much. And thank you again to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Jose Olivares. All right, everybody. It is March, and we are talking about a poetry collection because I don't only talk about poetry in April when the poems are super duper good. I'm joined today by Jose Olivares, who is the author of Promises of Gold, a brand new poetry collection. Jose, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, I, I joke about that because I'm usually very bad at poetry, okay? I'm just throwing this out because you're apparently very good at poetry. So you're now gonna get to talk to those of us who are failures. But before we get into that, in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell the folks about your book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started writing Promises of Gold during the pandemic um, and right before the pandemic. And it was my attempt to write love poems for all the people And homies that kind of have held me down as I've gone through various stages in my life. And as I was writing those love poems, the pandemic happened and a whole lot of other things happened, the uprisings of 2020, and it complicated those love poems. And so Promises of Gold is what happens when you try to live, when you try to write love poems, you know, amidst our complicated and sometimes cruel world.
0: Yeah, I want to start with... I guess the outside of the book in the Mm -hmm. early pages of the book for folks who don't know, this book is published both in English and in Spanish. And um, I guess my first question is, why did you want to do it that way as opposed to having a translated copy that was a different book physically?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing is it's more accessible this way, right? so people don't have to spend their money twice. But the other thing is, for me, this is the first time that my parents will be able to read my poetry. I've talked about it, yeah, I've talked about my poetry with them, but it's the first time that they'll be able to experience it on their own.
0: Do you speak Spanish? Because in your English poems, there is some Spanish language in there.
1: Yeah, Spanish is my first language. So yeah, I speak Spanish, but I don't feel super confident writing poetry in Spanish.
0: What is that? Can you talk more about that? Because I just I think it's interesting. I think most people would assume like, oh, if you it's your first language, you speak the language and you're a poet, you'd be able to do it in both. And, and you didn't. You got you have a translator who worked with you. So I'm just curious if you'd speak more to why that's difficult for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my parents migrated to the United States from Mexico and I went to school my whole life in English only classroom. So okay. I learned You know, how to write with style and technique in English, whereas Spanish is more conversational and and it's just a little bit harder to access the creative, the creative side of Spanish for me.
0: Did you ever try to translate your own poems and were like, no, not going to be able to do it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, I've tried to translate my own poems. Um, It's hard. It's hard. It feels like you're writing a different poem altogether.
0: Yeah. Have your parents read this book?
1: Yes. My mom and dad have both read this book. My brothers have read the book. They all really loved it. They said it made them cry at times. So uh, it's cool. It's cool to have their support.
0: I'm going to start crying right now. That's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Okay. One more question about your translator, and then I'm going to move off of this. But I do think it's like really worthy of conversation because I've never seen a book like this before I don't think mm. I don't know I, I mean again I don't read a lot of poetry so it could be like a thing poets are doing and I have no clue but I I think it's really cool and so your book starts with an author's note and then your translator has a note where essentially your translator says you you're not shit basically about you <laughs> he's like he's like anyone who says America when they mean the United States you know I mean, he it's sort of jokingly but I I mean, I want to talk about that a little bit. It was like such a moment for me because he's in the introduction. He sort of talks about some of the choices he makes. Like he talks about what it is to translate something. You know, he talks about Mexico and Mexicano and he talks about like losing a letter and all this stuff. It's really interesting. I, I love the in, inside baseball of it all. But he talks about towards the end about I've tra- uh He says each time the word America is used to name a country except an American dream Tangential. I've decided to say Estados, Estados Unidos. Why? Because America is a continent and not a country. The territory that goes from the Canadian Northwest to Patagonia is America. From Mexico to the South, we are not merely Latin America. I need to say this because when somebody uses the word America to mean the United States, they are omitting millions of people, thousands of miles of territory, countless cultures and languages. America is more than the USA, and many times this kind of reductionism leads to the oppression, for example, leads to oppression. For example, make America great again is a white supremacy slogan that erases people who don't meet certain standards, even if those people don't live in the United States. But we can't condemn Jose Olivares because he used that the word America to mean the United States because he hit back by saying America is toxic. So I'd love for you to just I'd love for you to hit back again. I'm going to start a fight between you two. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really love that note and I love that he included that explanation. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, and you know, I thought about in those in our conversations in the editing process, going back and changing the title of that poem, um, you know, to it's called American Tragedy, and changing it to United Statesian Tragedy or something like that. But <laughs> I, I really, I thought it was important for people to kind of see that. Even in our conversations, there's there's still potential to learn and, and continue to grow. So I appreciated the note from David. I think he's right on point. And I'm trying to, like, slow down and catch myself now whenever I do jump to use America as a country, right? To remember that America is not a country. We're not, you know, this is not the America. We're talking about the Americas, right? Um,
0: right.
1: So, yeah, that was a really big learning moment for me, for sure. I lo-
0: I loved it. I loved I mean I just I you can tell from reading this from reading both of your notes even just from the beginning how collaborative it was between the two of you. And so were there times where you did change a poem or change a word because it translated better or like he sent you his translation of a poem and you were like, "Oh, I want to change it in English too because it's not right or whatever."
1: I mean, there weren't really times where we went back to the English to try and change the English, but we did have Tons of conversations over specific word choices in Spanish. So there's like a word that David uses, ochocientos mil, which is like, you know, a great, it, it, it's an, a fake number that means a great many, right? Um, like
0: 5011. Yeah, something. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Exactly. Ex- exactly. So David, when, when he came across the word in English, I forget exactly what the English word is, but he presented me with a whole bunch of options. And so we would talk back and forth and and not just talk about meaning, but also the music of the poem, right? Like
0: mm. something
1: that I pride myself on is that I really believe that the English poems sound good and I wanted the Spanish poems to sound good out loud, right? Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of the process. I'll say the one disagreement that we had was over the word for grass, which I translate to sacate and he uses sespedh. So that became like a big disagreement. We, you know, we started an email and moved over to IG to like continue our disagreement. <laughs> um, Who won? You know, honestly, I have to look back and check. I don't even remember. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> but...
0: It sounds like you lost.
1: I probably... <laughs> You'd
0: remember if you won. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: Um, speaking of word choice, there, like I mentioned before, there's parts in the English poems where you use Spanish language Spanish language words. How much agonizing did you do over that? Or was it just sometimes like, I have to use the Spanish word, the English word just doesn't hit?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of multiple reasons why I'll use a Spanish word, right? One is because the music of the Spanish word is just prettier. It adds a different element that the English translation doesn't add. The other thing that I listen for is... There's certain textures that the words have in Spanish that the words in English don't have. And so, mm. for example, one of my favorite words in Spanish is the word ojalá. Now, ojalá translates loosely to like hopefully. But ojalá is derived from inshallah, right? It comes, there's like a texture of mm. spirituality and holiness to that word that gets lost when it's translated to hopefully. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about when I'm kind of deciding which word to use.
0: Right. And obviously you have just from hearing you talk, but I think I know this about you from the people that you're friends with. You have a background in uh, out loud poetry, spoken poetry, poetry performance. So you're really thinking about the music of the words and how it sounds and how it should be, how, how readers should receive it. And so I guess the question is about the translation of that. Like, how do you translate you getting up on stage and doing your poem and knowing the cadence and whatever to actually making it look the way that you hope will will tell your readers to read it that way? And I know that you can't exactly Mm. do that, but... I have a every time I have a poet on, I talk about this. I have a performance background. So when I'm reading a poem, I'm taking line endings, punctuation, like the length of a line. I'm taking all of those things into account and saying, like, okay, how should I read this? And I often do read poems out loud because I feel like there's clues just in how the words sound. But how are you thinking about giving me those clues?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the process of going from reading a poem out loud to how it should be organized on the page is not simply like where I take a breath, that's where the line break goes. Because part of what makes, and I've learned this over time, right? Part of what makes reading poetry on a page exciting to me is that, you know, every line is its own unit. And so, And then, you know, you read two lines together and that's a different unit and it, it can complicate the meaning of each of those individual lines. Right. And so for me, when I when I started writing, I didn't really like to use punctuation. I kind of just ended lines where the breath was. And that was how I organized it. And now I'll use punctuation so that I can be a little bit more creative with the line breaks. And so for me, if I was trying to give someone a guide for how I would read the poem out loud, I would say kind of follow the the punctuation more so than the line breaks. Um Ugh,
0: you've deviated from my from my personal crusade. I'm a line break queen.
1: That's that's me though. I think the important thing is you know I really believe that poetry is collaborative, right? So I start the poem, but it's not finished until the reader does whatever they do with it.
0: No, it's okay. I'm not really mad at you. It's just this is this is the thing that we talk about every time I talk to a poet because mm-hmm. I'm it's so different. Everyone has a different thought or feeling about it and I again come to it. I studied Shakespeare, so I have very strong feelings about iambic pentameter and what the punctuation versus the line ending means in a po- in a you know, a speech from Shakespeare or whatever. And so taking like those are my skills that I come to a poetry book with and so I'm always like what are you, what are you thinking about it when you mm. put it down? And you know like sometimes poems look cool but then you try to read the way that it looks and you're like it's not doing it like it looks cool on the page but clearly this was a poem that you wanted people to read off the page and there's no chance you could perform it that way
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: okay I'm going to talk about your author's note one more time I love it I'm a big fan of when poets tell me give me any clues about the work do you how do you feel about it? Because I know it's sort of a contentious thing in the poetry world of like giving clues or answers to your readers, especially at the beginning of a collection.
1: I mean, I wrote the author's note, you know, when I before I even had the publishing contract, it was like part of what oh. we used to get the publishing contract. And I didn't know that the publisher would want to include that note in the actual physical book. But I'm really glad they did, mostly because, you know, like we talked about, right, my my kind of entrance into poetry was via spoken word. And that meant that when I tried to take those skills from going to a million poetry slams and open mics and trying to transfer that to the page, it was really hard for me at times to make sense of what was happening on the page in some people's poetry. And so I'm not too far removed from those days that I can't remember what it was like to like (laughs) want so desperately to, to enter into a poem and find locked door after locked door. Right. So if I can make it a little bit easier, a little bit more welcoming, I'm all for that.
0: I Thank you. It's much appreciated. It paid off, at least in my case. Um, so you started, we started talking about uh, at the very beginning where this poetry collection came from. And you, and then the authors know you talked about how it was sort of like an ode to the homies. And then, you know, COVID happened and and the world happened and 2020 happened and beyond. But I'd love for you to talk about why writing love poems to your friends was important. And especially I'm thinking about it after watching the media cycle about Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors the last few weeks mm-hmm. and, like, that, like, tenderness between them and, and you know, you talked a little bit about machismo in your book, or uh, quite a bit, actually. And so, I don't know, all of those things are sort of swirling in my brain, and I'd love for you to speak to what was swirling in yours.
1: Yeah. The media cycle was so wild because Jonathan Majors is, like he is the epitome of a certain type of masculinity, right? Like he's ripped, he's strong. And yet for the, like, it just goes to show that there's no winning that game, right? There's no No. way to be machista enough or masculine enough. It doesn't matter how many muscles you have. I started thinking about writing love poems for my friends in part because I started writing the collection at this very particular moment where a lot of my friends were starting to get married and our friendships were starting to change in different ways right it went mm-hmm. from you know when we were in our early 20s we would squad up together and roll like 20 deep wherever we were going to now you know we're kind of <laughs> spread across the country and and we just we don't get to see each other as much and so i was thinking about how special those relationships were and are, right? And how the, even in the, as they're changing, they remain special. But how we held each other together through so many heartbreaks, through getting fired at jobs, through deaths in the family, you know, through so much. And that's a really special type of relationship that just doesn't, we don't spend enough time, I think, really thanking people for for being there, right? It really feels like if it's not a romantic relationship, it kind of gets pushed to the side in cultural discourse.
0: Yeah, I I wish more poets wrote about friends because I really like that. And I feel like that's really relatable, right? Like we Mm. all have friends at some point in our life, hopefully always, but like... I don't know. It's like people write poems about trees. I'm like, friends are like trees. They're everywhere. Like, There's so much to talk about.
1: (laughs) I love that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. You know, it's funny you say that. I was just in Arizona and I visited Saguado National Park, right? Uh, Mm. National Park full of cacti. And um, I remember seeing these ancient cacti and just feeling like I was with the ancestors. And they're just like, Standing tall, and sometimes the the cacti are like very close to each other, and it kind of looks like they're hugging each other. I was just like, this is this is how we survive. even in the desert, mm. this is how we survive.
0: I feel a poem coming on
1: <laughs> maybe
0: I have a sense. I don't know. Please dedicate it to me. Thank you. there you go <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have this great poem in in, in a word you just mentioned, ohala, oh, and ohala, oh, my homies, that poem. Oh my God. The end. I'm oh, So emotional. It's about sneakers and friends mm. and how you tuck your sneakers away because you didn't want to get like, you didn't want them to get ganked or whatever. And that's how you all learn to love was to, was to keep the things you love most close by and out of sight, like the sneakers. And uh, I don't know, man, that one really just got, got to me. I mean, mm. how do you hope these poems about like your deep love for your friends will be received or seen.
1: I mean, that was one of those flashbulb moments in my life. Like I remember my friend, he was coming over to to hang out and he was just like I just saw somebody get jumped for their shoes and he was wearing the same shoes, you know. Right. Um my hope is that the poems will be shared with people, will I know that, like, for example, I have a friend out in California who is book clubbing the book with, like, her boo and also her dad, you know? Uh, So, I, I, yeah, I think that's cool. So, I, I hope that people will share the poems and, you know, I don't know that they need to be used for, like, how do I put it? You know, and now let's talk about Mm. This, right? Like, I don't know that they need to be you. I guess I'm cool with however people use them, but I really hope that people will share them. And then maybe down the line, they'll have opportunities to talk about the different ways that we love and the different ways that we hold our emotions in, particularly when it comes to like men and masculine people.
0: So, your book is broken into sections, there's 11, but the last three are all titled Glory. And ohala, ohala, ohala comes up in two other sections. Talk to me about that. I mean, I know you made a choice. I just would love to know what you're thinking. The three different glories are, or why separate them, and all of that.
1: Yeah. So, the organization of the book was the idea of my friend Nate Marshall, who I know you know,
0: friend of the pod. We yes, love Nate here. Yes, Big yes. fans.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Um, Nate is the person that I go to when my manuscript is almost done but there's like (laughs) a little something missing and Mm -hmm. so I visited Nate and his idea was that we should listen to the album by Common B and so that album has 11 songs and so we went Mm -hmm. about trying to organize these poems into 11 sections to kind of follow the movement of that album. Um, Mm. We landed on the last three sections being called Glory because one, you know, I think Nate was telling me that there's like, um, like an old church hymn called Glory, Glory, Glory. There's a song that goes glory, glory, glory. And so we wanted to end it on this kind of upward note on this song that Mm. is thinking about what, what is glory in our lives what is what is the thing that is going to keep us as, and sustain us um and so that is why but even still those poems are not always easy right like the movement is not straight up and so yeah part of what i like is that each each one is an attempt again like maybe the first glory fails at reaching that place but then the next one is another attempt and then you get one more attempt after that so that's what I was hoping for is that that kind of repetition and and a, another try to like make something beautiful.
0: So and when you're organizing, I'm always so curious about this because you started writing this before the pandemic. Now we're in 2023. So clearly some of these poems are a lot older than others. When you figure out the sh- the organization, the 11 things, you have the different titles, how much of it is moving things that are already done into the correct place versus writing new things to fill up the different different sections? Or is or is there a different process that you use?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like part of it is definitely moving poems that I like into the correct sections that will give them the most kind of oomph for in terms of like how they relate to the poems around them. Um but the other part is once you get a look at the whole buildup of the book, you might and I often do see where there are like small gaps. And then I try to write and be more purposeful in how I write the poems that kind of they're not necessarily the last poems in the book, but they're the last poems that I write for the book.
0: Do you remember the first poem, the the first chronologically the first poem you wrote for this book and then chronologically the last poem you wrote for this book
1: I definitely remember the last poem that I wrote for this book it the last poem that I wrote was a poem called more please and it's a sonnet yeah there you go it's a poem it's a sonnet and I was trying to find a way to write about you know, the kind of fear that I had in thinking about my parents and the distance that was between us. Mm. And I had just had a conversation with Nicole, who's like one of my friends and who gets a shout out in the poem. So that was the last poem I wrote. I would say the first poem that I wrote, oh, is a poem that I pulled from the archives. It's a poem called Bulls versus Sons 1993. And that one was published. Love that one. <laughs> that was published in the Lit magazine in like 2012. Um, and so that's the oldest poem for sure.
0: I think that poem, I think I made a note. Let me make sure it's the right one. Oh no, different one, but I do remember that one. I made a note because on page one thirty two you have a poem that has like it's the um, Down to My Elbows poem that ends with the Shakespeare line. And then on the next page, you have Rebuttal that has uh, NBA 2K. And I was like, this is very much the exact two pages of this book that were written specifically for me, <laughs> like Shakespeare and basketball. I was like, this is very much exactly my shit, um, though. There are other poems that I was like, yes, there's much, much, much food in this book, which I love as a snack queen. Um, so, how, so there's a Cheetos poem. There's a Tortillas poem. Just thank you for including food because that's my personal joy. But there's, I I, I felt like, and, and this is sort of a weird thing to admit into a microphone. So I hope this isn't horrible and people don't hate me. But I've, as I mentioned, I struggle with poetry. And a lot of the times when I'm trying to find a collection and trying to figure out what it is that I like about poetry, I turn to people that are exactly like me or very close to me, right? So like Black millennials, who are talking about pop culture, right? And I really struggle if I'm reading like an older poet or a poet from a different background. And your book is the first time that I've read a book, and and you're a millennial like me, so we have a lot of the same culture references, but you're Mexican and and I'm black, and I, I wasn't sure it was gonna like work for me, you know, just being really honest. And it really did. And it gave me a confidence like, okay, I'm getting somewhere, like I could do it. But I also was like, this is so awesome because- This poetry is so good. It doesn't really matter. And like, I think, Mm. you know, that's speaking to a lot of different things with me and also some great things about you. But I think the food and the basketball and the Shakespeare and the friends and all of that, like really, really helped because it does feel not universal because I hate when people say that shit, but it does feel like an invitation. I felt like an invitation. Like I got to know you better and I got to see things that I already knew and loved in this collection. Um, It's not a question. That's just me expounding. Uh, We'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. Um, I have to tell you my favorite poem yes. in the collection. And then I want to hear from you about your favorites, but I'll tell you mine first. Maybe it's not my favorite poem in the collection because there's a few that popped to mind. But my favorite love poem I've ever read is in this collection. And it's love poem beginning with the yellow cab. I just love that poem. Why is it so perfect? <laughs> that
1: makes me so happy. I really like that poem too, especially as someone that finds it difficult to write love poems. I'm glad that 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 one worked for you.
0: Oh my god, I read I it's so early in the collection and I read it and I was like, "Ah, oh. I love him. I love her. I love Taxi Cat. Like I was just like, <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever read. I, I now love the color yellow. I didn't I don't even like yellow, but I loved it. Do you have favorites or are you a kind parent to your poems and you don't pick favorites?
1: There, there are, you know, my relationship to the poems changes as I spend more time with them. So for example, one of my current favorites is eating Taco Bell with Mexicans. Yes. Great, Great. (laughs) And it's one of my favorites because it's one that people request when I read at shows. And it surprised me at first. Uh, To me, that's kind of like a a funnier, kind of sillier poem. But people really enjoy it. And so in turn, it has made me enjoy that one. And then I would say like the poems about my parents are really special to me And, and definitely probably the poems I'm the most proud of.
0: I love that. The one about um, the church, I I didn't write down the name, the one about the church and your parents and the community and like waiting Mm -hmm. for salvation. That one, so good too. I mean, people who are listening, you have to get the collection because I'm just like saying lines from poems. So it's kind of like a clue for you when you get the collection, you'll be able to know what I'm talking about. But there are, I mean, there's so many good ones. There's just, it's like such a, I I guess this is not a question again, but maybe (laughs) we can talk about this. But what what else really works for me in this collection is that you have like the love poems, right? And you have the humor and it's pushed up, like right up against the, the grief and the fear. There's so much like anxiety in this collection from you. And there's so much tenderness. And it, when you're writing these things, these poems and you're, and you're actively working on the book. So I guess not like when you're writing something years ago, but as you're putting it all together, how are you thinking about balance and authenticity when it comes to your life and putting it down on paper?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I don't know that I think about authenticity a lot. I definitely think about balance Sometimes I'll hear poets talk about how they're only writing for themselves. I don't Mm -hmm. really think that that's my experience. When I'm writing, I'm writing and also thinking about it in terms of how the reader will experience it. So I want to make sure that if there is a poem that feels heavy to me, that I'm following it up with some sort of lightness, that there's movement, right? That it doesn't feel monotone to me. That's one of the things that I look for when I'm reading a book of poems is even if I really like the first couple of poems, if I get six or seven more poems in the exact same register and emotional field, you know, it kind of, it dulls me, right? It, It kind of loses me. And so I want my collection to feel surprising. Maybe you read a couple of love poems and you're like, all right, I think I know what this is. And then boom, there's a poem that kind of hits you in an unexpected way. So I definitely think about how to balance the book.
0: Are you thinking about that when you're writing it? Or are you thinking about that more when you're putting it together?
1: I think about it more when I'm putting it together.
0: So when you're writing, you're sort of just writing what you what is coming to you. And then as you start to think about a book, you start to think like, OK, maybe this one doesn't make the cut this time because it's too much of the same or, or, or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I'm writing... It's a little bit of a mystery to me. And so when I sit down, I'm often searching. I'll write line after line and kind of throw it away until I write a line or an image that feels like a door opening, right? Like, I, I this is the way I explain it. Writing poetry to me is sometimes the same feeling as when I go to therapy, which is that there are certain days where I like sit down w- with my therapist and I'll be like, I don't know what to tell you, doc. Like, I'm good this week. Nothing. There's <laughs> nothing on my mind. I feel good. We might as well skip today. And then the doctor will ask me, you know, one question and suddenly I'll be like on the verge of tears. And it <laughs> it transports me, right? It opens up this place that I didn't know was underneath my kind of present self. And so poetry works the same way. Like, sometimes I'll write a word and it'll, something solid will be underneath that. And that's kind of how My writing process of each individual poem goes
0: you mentioned the reader I want to talk about audience a little bit how are you slash who are you imagining is the reader how are you like because if you're thinking about how they're reading it or their experience you must have to think about who they could be to have a better understanding to write to them
1: yeah so I begin by writing poems that I think my brothers will enjoy. I have three younger brothers and none of them are really like poetry majors, English majors. So I want them to really enjoy the poems and then also poems that are impressive to my friends, right? I started writing as a high school student and the thing that kind of kept me going was you know, that my friends would email me their poems and I'd be like, this is the best thing I ever read. And I'd want to like continue that and want them to feel that way about me. So those are the 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 two audiences that I'm thinking about.
0: Okay, I love that. I, it's funny, because I feel like I know many people or I've read many people who are like kind of in your poet friend group at this point, like many of the names you thanked at the end, I was like, Oh, I know them. And it's funny to think of you all. And then to think of like, the old school, like beat neck poets, like doing the same shit, but like not having, you know, not having email, but being like, okay, like, I don't know their names, but you know, like <sighs> Lenny Bruce or whatever, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, beat this. like, <laughs> And I'm sure it's exactly how it was, but you're not taught that in school. You're not like, Oh, Walt Whitman was like talking shit to his friends being like, I bet you can't write like this, my guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. I love imagining Walt like that. I'm sure that I I really hope he was talking shit to his friends.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. Because I feel like we're sort of taught that like poets are like very serious and like uptight and sort of precious about their work. And I think there is some of that because I think there's like some neuroticism about the type of person who will like take 30 words and spend like five years trying to make it a poem. Like there's like something about like the specificity. But all the poets I've ever talked to are hilarious and competitive and like and silly and loving and tender and like maybe mean sometimes like and there's like so much more than the like I'm a poet and like I speak softly and I you know sit outside by the moonlight and I'm sure you all do that too but like I don't know it's just knowing real life poets who are writing right now makes me think about olden time poets very differently
1: I love that I mean I for one Love sitting by the moonlight. I think we're getting a full moon today. As we, I
0: think speak. soon, yes.
1: And uh, I'm very <laughs> excited to to see the full moon. But but yeah, I mean, I think, I I mean, I think it it's weird, right? People treat poetry, and I think certain types of visual art too, right? Like yeah. I had a friend from high school who became a glassblower, and it it kind of stunned me to be like, wait, but you're just like a regular person. How did you get into <laughs> Glass blowing that feels so esoteric and you know i don't i didn't think about like who becomes glassblowers but but yeah like you know it it's it's like a profession it's a craft it's a hobby it's it's something that we love but at the end of the day like it, it i don't really think about poetry as defining who i am like i i think about um I think if you wanted to get to know me, like you're probably a lot closer if you, if you know any like long suffering basketball fans. You know what I mean? Like, yes, of like I, the Chicago I Bulls. One. I was one.
0: <laughs> I'm the opposite of you, so I'm a Warriors fan, which means my whole childhood was long suffering, and now we're in the success. And you're the opposite. You had a great childhood rooting for Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, and yeah. now it's sadness in the wake of. Jimmy Butler and Derrick Rose. On and on. (laughs) Broken dreams. (laughs) My
1: best friend in college was a Warriors fan. And uh, so one of my best college memories was like, like commandeering like a common area in 2008 and watching the We Believe Warriors, like shock the world. I got to
0: go to the game where... um, uh, Where Baron Davis dunked on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's iconic. I was at that game. Mother's Day game. Uh, Yes. We grew up. So this is, people might know this, but you don't. But we grew up. Eventually, my dad was able to, like, get us season tickets to the Warriors. These great seats. And he got two tickets. And my mom would go to all the, like, big games like when Kobe would come to town right and my brother would go to like the mid-tier games and I got to go to every Kevin Garnett game in the history of the Warriors versus the Timberwolves because they were so bad and we were so bad and this I think we like got tickets like you know the 13 win season or whatever and now I like look back at a few years ago when they had only 13 losses or 12 losses and I'm like I did both I've been here for all of it but yes that 2008 I remember staying up because I was living in New York, having to stay up so late to watch those fucking games. And now look at us. Prime time. All the time.
1: That's true. That's (laughs) true. Sorry to rub it in. I can't relate. (laughs) Honestly, those days are long gone for me.
0: They're in your rear view. But you know, these things are cyclical. It'll come back. There's hope for you. I hope. I hope for you. I love that you're a personality. You're like, I'm not a poet. I'm just a Chicago Bulls fan. Just a sad, sad boy Chicago Bulls fan. I mean,
1: honestly, I feel like that might, like there there is some sort of link to the kind of despair, loneliness that comes from like watching those games. <laughs> the kind of, the hope at the beginning of the season and, and the way that it kind of deflates and the the rhythms of some of the poems. Like I actually don't think that that's, like I'm, kidding but i'm not
0: i love it i mean hanif is also a long-suffering basketball fan right he's a timberwolves fan he's got i feel like maybe there's something in there's something in there about basketball and sad boy poets maybe, (laughs) or sad boy basketball fan poets i guess i should say it um can i ask you about a sonnet about sonnets yeah, You have a few, you have a few sonnets in here and then you have a, a, a almost sonnet. I can't remember the phrase used, but it's like close to a sonnet. How, I think of sonnet as Shakespearean sonnet, but there's obviously a different definition. What is it? 14 lines? Is that the only rule of a sonnet?
1: Um, It depends, right? There's various kinds of definitions and of, rules. There's like a Petrarchian sonnet that has, I think, a different rhyme structure as well as a different a different meter than, than the Shakespearean sonnet. For me, the kind of two things that are important is the 14 lines, but that there's a volta, right? And so a volta is a turn. And so it's the point where, you know, the poem changes and shifts gears and rushes towards some kind of climax. For me, I started writing sonnets in part because it felt like a very familiar way to organize a poem. You know, when I consider like growing up in poetry slam and the way that at the end you wanted to leave the audience with something strong so that they would give you a good score. Right. And and I think that was like learning that tradition taught me how to write the endings of my poems. And so I think Mm. for me, the sonnet was just like a very natural fit in some ways.
0: I want to talk about how you write.
1: Yeah.
0: How often... How many How many hours? Where are you? Music or no? Snacks or no? Beverages or no? Rituals or no?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to put myself back into that place. <laughs> so I tend to write in bursts. And so I don't necessarily write every day of every month of every year. But for you know, three or four months sporadically right throughout the year, I'll write every day. And the way that I do it is it'll be basically the first thing that I do in the morning. I'll make a pot of coffee. I'll sit down at my desk, usually with some snacks for sure. Um, Say
0: more. Say more. What kind? Talk about it.
1: <laughs> um, it depends. I'm a big fan of uh Sour Patch Kids. I like to have those. Yes. Um, Thank you. And then, you know, I also really like gala apples, specifically gala apples.
0: Refrigerated or no?
1: Refrigerated. I like them cold, cold and crisp. Um, You know, definitely some water, some coffee. And sometimes I'll sit at the desk for three or four hours. Sometimes the poems come much quicker. Sometimes all I get for my three or four hours is the beginnings of a poem, right? But I try to be that's kind of my ritual is do it first, do it in the morning, because Mm -hmm. if I procrastinate on writing, then either I won't do it at all. Or when I sit down to write, my brain will be clouded with all of the things that happened during that day. And so I don't I kind of want to bring a clear head to my writing.
0: When you're out in the world and you're not at your desk, like prepared to write, are you do you have a notebook? Are you taking notes? I just imagine poets are writing down like thi- like, oh, I saw a dog today. Like ca- ca- Border Collie, like yeah. remember this. Um, or are you not doing that?
1: I, I keep a notebook with me, but very rarely do I like pull it out to jot little notes. More often the thing that I'm doing when I'm traveling or when I'm not kind of. At the desk is trying to read and pay attention and taking notes about what I'm seeing. Um, yes, for me, like that being present in that way is more useful than always trying to jump into writing.
0: And then you said, you know, three or four months you're writing. What are you doing the other eight, nine months?
1: Watching the bulls and being miserable. Uh <laughs> I don't know i'm I mean what I'm doing the other months is like really trying to read it's it's also something that kind of changes right before my first book came out during those eight or nine months, I was you know working a full time job and like being in relationship with all the people that I love after my first book came out i became I began touring a lot more and visiting colleges, and so those eight or nine months were in part because I was just traveling a lot and, and visiting mm. different places. Um, and so if I wasn't traveling, then I was resting. I was, you know, playing video games with my friends. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so that, that it kind of changes.
0: Got it. Okay. And what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try?
1: Rhythm. Rhythm is a Ugh. word I can never spell correctly. I always forget if it's, In H, Y, H, uh, like, is it two H's? Does the H come right after the R? Is it R Y T H Y M? I There's, I always mess it up.
0: It looks wrong also. The problem is that even if you get it right, it doesn't feel right. It feels like this, this can't possibly be right. I I hate that word truly. I didn't ask you about the title, but I want to talk about it. And the cover. Will you tell us about both of those things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Promises of Gold is the title of the collection because I wanted a title that hinted at, you know, some of the, like, different conversations that were in the book, right? And I think, you know, we talked about the love poems. I think there's, like, a fair number of poems that are thinking about class identity, right? Um, And then it also... That gold is really important when I think about like the history of colonization of Latin America. That's one of the things that brought, you know, the Spanish to the Caribbean and to Latin America, uh, South America. And so for me, that gold is it has two sides of it. Right. Like it is part of what ruins or brings about the attempt to ruin a people and different peoples in the Americas. And it's also this kind of shining thing that still can be beautiful at times. So that's kind of how the title came to be. And then in terms of the cover, I really love the cover. And that was all my press. My press, uh, the kind of the visual editor at Henry Holt, whose name is Christopher Sergio. It was his idea. He wanted to kind of highlight the flowers and the different things that are highlighted in the text and then also bring in. The Lucha Lord Mask, which, um, yeah, I just think it looks really beautiful. So I'm really happy with it.
0: I love it. I love it. I think it's like so engaging. Is there anything that's not in this book that you wish could be or was? Hmm.
1: That's a good question. I don't think so. I think, you know, honestly, if anything, I, I, I kind of if I had it my way, I would have published a slightly slimmer book. I think I'd maybe take out some poems and not necessarily because I think they're bad poems. I just, my preference is for like a slightly smaller book of poems. I think part of what I love about poems is that it can be a fast read, right? Um, And so when you get these big tomes, you lose some of that, some of like what poetry offers, which is that it can, it can transport you somewhere else in a short amount of time. So that's probably the one thing I would change.
0: How? This is maybe a little esoteric. I don't know. How do you know when you're done with a poem? Because some of your poems are like eight lines and then some are like 30 or something.
1: Yeah. I know that a poem, that I'm finished with the poem, when I feel it's like a particular feeling. Um, you're right. I mean, it's different from like a short story or a chapter in a novel where, you know, maybe you arrive somewhere. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In poetry, it's not necessarily that the plot is resolved, but there's a feeling or a slight texture that has revealed itself. So for me, that that's what I'm looking for is that something has surfaced. And then it's really dependent on the poem. Sometimes once the emotion has been surfaced, and that's it. Sometimes there's an attempt to re- to kind of reverse or some like I think about poems almost as like spells, right? To to try and build a poem that changes that emotion. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's all about feelings. I think that I think that's ending poems is one of the hardest things.
0: Well, it seems like it would be because it sort of feels like you could keep going, right? Mm. Like it's like seems like one of those things like you're saying like because there isn't a specific place that you're writing to necessarily, like it would be easy to do, at least for someone like me, it would be easy to do too much, right? Like to mm. not know how to to stop. And I'm also thinking about like your background in in spoken word and like those poems are usually considerably longer than a lot of the poems in this book. So was that a difficult transition for you at all?
1: Um I think it was a difficult transition when I was a lot younger. Right. But at this point, it's been probably easily at least 10 years since I participated in like a poetry slam. Um, So even though I still read my poems out loud for audiences, I've had a lot of practice kind of Mm. writing specifically for the page. And so for me, Honestly, the short poem feels good to me in part because I think one of the things that I struggled with when I was younger was always wanting to make sure that everyone understood exactly what I was saying. Mm. And so I was overwriting a lot of those poems, right? And being like, in case you didn't get it, this is about (laughs) being Mexican. You know what I mean? Yeah. And one more time, just for those of you in the back. Uh
0: yeah
1: <laughs> and so i feel I feel much more confident as a writer, and so i think I think that gives me the ability to write the short poem and to be like no that where I ended it feels good that that that's enough
0: oh that's I mean that's so cool that you could do that it just feels like such like discipline because i as you can tell, I can't stop talking um, <laughs> <laughs> what's uh what comes next for you, do you know?
1: Yeah, so two things. I have a collaborative project with a photographer from Phoenix named Antonio Salazar, um, who takes these beautiful portraits of life on the south and west sides of Phoenix, two neighborhoods, um, you know, that struggle with violence at times. But he takes photos of really hard things in really tender and beautiful ways. And so, in some ways, that reminds me a lot of the types of poems that I'm trying to write, where it's like treating everything, even the things that are hard, with tenderness and compassion. And so, that project is called Por Siempre. Um, it's mostly photography by Antonio, but it also features 15 of my poems that will be released by Haymarket in April, um, on April oh. 4th. Yeah, so coming up oh, soon. Shit.
0: So if you're listening to this, you've got three weeks.
1: There you go. And then uh, the next solo project that I'm going to work on is a novel. Um, <gasps> yeah. So I don't know how to write a novel. I have to figure it out. Me
0: neither. Good luck.
1: <laughs> Thank you. But that—that that is. I'll what's let you next. know how
0: you did. Yeah, please. But I can't <laughs> help. <laughs> For people who love Promises of Gold, what are other books you might recommend to them that are in conversation? with what you've done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think about the Smith's book, homie. Um, I think that's a great one. Brandy Choi has a collection of poems that was just released. Um, the world keeps ending and the world goes on. And then I think two books that are a little bit older that I'm always writing in conversation with are Eve Ewing's book, electric arches, and then Nate Marshall's book, wild hundreds.
0: Um, <laughs> I love that I book. I loved Wild Hundreds. It's I know so Finna good. was the one that got like all the attention, but I think Wild Hundreds is so good.
1: Finna is also amazing. It
0: is. Finna's also fantastic, yeah. but I just wish more people would go back and read Wild Hundreds. Wild, Wild so. Hundreds
1: is my jam. Like I, yeah. I I know that Nate probably feels like the poems in Finna are are much stronger, probably. That makes sense, right? He's a right. A, a different artist at that point. But um for me, the poems in, in Wild Hundreds are just so excellent and perfect. And then the last book I would say is probably um, Natalie Diaz's When My Brother Was an Aztec, um, which mm. is another book that I keep with me at all times and read from it whenever I'm feeling unsure. And it, it really is that beautiful to me.
0: I've never read any Natalie Diaz because I'm a little intimidated. Do you think that I can handle it?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay.
0: okay. <laughs> I sometimes get scared to read people that everyone else says is great because I'm like, what if I'm not there yet?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. That that book is okay. amazing. You, you'll. Okay. I really think you'll like it. I hope you like it.
0: I'll take your recommendation on it, and then I will tag you when I finish <laughs> and be like, so some notes for Jose. Um, two more. If you or what do you hope people will keep in mind as they read Promises of Gold?
1: That's a good question. I hope people, I hope people will be patient with themselves, right? You mentioned that sometimes people struggle getting into poetry. And I would say, you know, if there are particular poems that you don't understand, that's okay. Like, Keep reading. I promise you that the book has a bunch of different types of poems. And if you don't understand one, it doesn't mean that you won't understand all of them. So be patient with yourselves, with yourself as a reader and give yourself space to enter the poems in whatever way you can.
0: And then my last question for you is if you could have one person, dead or alive, read your book, who would you want it to be?
1: Um. My paternal grandmother and grandfather died before this book was published in Mexico. And I think, I think recently I've been thinking a lot about like the way stories, the way people keep stories and what happens when they're no longer with us. And particularly for my family, because like I've tried to trace some of the documents and the histories of where we've lived and, there, there just isn't any official paperwork. Like all of our oh. histories were kept by people. Um, and so I would love to for them to be able to read the book for
0: sure. It's really beautiful. Um, all right. Well, everyone, this has been a conversation with Jose Olivares, the author of Promises of Gold, a poetry collection, and also the author of a very shortly forthcoming about 15 poems and a fantastic photo book from Haymarket that we're all going to go get too while we're at it. Um, Jose, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. This was really fun.
0: Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Jose Olivares for being our guest. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Clarissa Long for helping to make this conversation possible. Make sure you tune in on March 29th for the Stacks Book Club discussion of Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay with our guest, Shanita Hubbard. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash thestacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at the Pod on Instagram and at the Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McPright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.